This is episode 176 of That Shakespeare Life. Our show this week is brought to you by our members here at That Shakespeare Life, who not only submit topic suggestions and questions to be asked directly to our guests on the show, but members get exclusive access to our video streaming library and printable Shakespeare resources like worksheets, lesson plans, and more. Explore all the benefits of becoming a member and sign up today at castycash.com slash member. And stay tuned after the episode for even more details. Hi. I'm Stephen Roycewicz, a retired psychiatrist and independent scholar in comparative literature, investigating the impact of the classics on Shakespeare. Another great method for studying the life of William Shakespeare includes listening to this, the podcast that superbly applies Shakespeare's words to the internet. There's magic in the web. It's that Shakespeare life with my friend, Cassidy Cash. And we do know for certain that the playing company did perform for Elizabeth. That's a lock. And we do know that they performed at Kenilworth in some other years because we have payments from Coventry for their presence at Kenilworth. It's listed in the payment at Coventry while they were at Kenilworth. So we know that that Leicester's Men's Company did perform at Kenilworth, and we know that they performed for the Queen. So it's a fairly strong prospect that they would have performed in 1575, the particular nine-day pageant that uh, was held at um, Leicester's home castle. Welcome to That Shakespeare Life with Cassidy Cash. Cassidy believes that if you desire to successfully learn or perform Shakespeare's plays, then understanding the real life and history of William Shakespeare himself is a must. That Shakespeare Life is the podcast that helps you go beyond the curtain of some of Shakespeare's most iconic works and explore the world of early modern England as Shakespeare would have lived it, learning from the writers, historians, and performers who know it best. And now, here's Cassidy. Lester's men are a group of actors who formed what many consider to be the founding company of English Renaissance theater. Established with the sponsorship of Robert Dudley, Earl of Leicester, the playing company traveled around England and abroad, performing plays with the legal protection of being in the Earl's service. The company was unique for its time in that they separated themselves from the traditional income model of playing companies, choosing instead to operate as an independent entity where they would generate their own income instead of getting paid only by their sponsor. By 1574, five men, including James Burbage, John Perkin, John Lanham, William Johnson, and Robert Wilson, would be listed on a royal patent for Lester's men, making their playing company the first to receive an official royal patent, and in doing so, gave these men the freedom to create what we know today as English Renaissance theater. Playing companies, including Shakespeare's company, the Lord Chamberlain's men, would go on to follow the model of Lester's men well into the late 16th and early 17th centuries. Here today to tell us the story of Lester's men and the groundwork they built for future playwrights like William Shakespeare is our guest, Laurie Johnson. 
Laurie Johnson is Professor of English and Cultural Studies at the University of Southern Queensland, Australia. He is the current president of the Australian and New Zealand Shakespeare Association and a member of the editorial board of the journal Shakespeare. Laurie's books include Shakespeare's Lost Playhouse, 11 Days at Newington Butts, The Train of Hamlet, and The Wolfman's Burden. And he is co-editor of two essay collections, Embodied Cognition and Shakespeare's Theater, The Early Modern Body Mind, and Wrapped in Secret Studies, Emerging Shakespeare's. He has also published over 50 articles and book chapters and is currently working on a book on the Earl of Leicester's men, which he hopes to complete later this year and is developing an international project to examine the impact of climate shift in 16th century Britain on the rise of the playhouse industry. Hello, Laurie. Welcome back again to the show. So nice to have you with us. Uh, Thanks, Cassidy. Thanks for having me. There is a letter that survives today, dated 1572, written by James Burbage for Lester's Men, the playing company, requesting that they be given the status of household servants under the Earl of Leicester. Laurie, why was it important to the playing company to be given the status of household servant? That seems counterintuitive to our mindset today. The, uh, the trouble with the, um, the, the status of servant was that it was a very specific piece of wording that... Uh, was contained in a a number of items of, we call that legislation today, royal proclamations and ordinances relating to who was allowed to leave their hometown and go to another hometown. So travel mobility from one town to another was heavily policed. And this is largely because uh, townships had very limited resources and the, the amount of population in them, for example, uh, would place strains on resources. So the local townships would need very clear guidelines as to who counted as local and who did not. Now, one of the stipulations around who was allowed to travel from one town to another were servants acting on behalf of a baron or noble. And so you had to be a part of the household of someone of high status in order to be allowed to go from one town to another. And you'd have that... Um, either the, the, the licence to do so or you'd be wearing the, the livery uh, as a member of that household. So what they're asking here is to say that they'd like to be able to continue to travel from one town to another without being potentially thrown in jail or ejected from, from any given township because they were doing so without licence. So the, the status of servant therefore gives them the capacity to do so. Lester's men would go on to be the first playing company to be given this kind of license from the royal monarch themselves. They were given a royal warrant by Queen Elizabeth that allowed them to perform anywhere in England. Laurie, why was this privilege distinct from other traveling playing companies of this period? What were Lester's men able to do under a royal patent that was previously inaccessible to them? Uh, we do have this uh, tendency at the moment in, in Shakespeare studies, in fact, not for the moment, for the last hundred years or so, we've been giving a great deal of weight to this particular royal patent of 1574. Yet I think it doesn't actually give Leicester's men licence to do more than what they had previously. Uh, so long as they were attached to the service of a noble or baron, most laws at the time allowed them to travel uh, and to perform in, in um, provincial areas and so on. But what the royal patent does is it effectively locks in the other way, a commitment from that company to be serving at court uh, as a regular contributor to the court revels in Christmas time for Her Majesty and her court. 
as at the time, Leicester's men were the most prominent uh, adult company in terms of constantly being asked year in, year out to perform at the court. But having that uh, that royal patent then also, I should also say, we also don't know for certain that they were the only one. It's just that's the one that survives. But my gut feeling is that maybe the Earl of Warwick's men may have received one. That's um, uh, Ambrose Dudley, uh, Robert Dudley's brother, who was the Earl of Warwick, and he had a playing company as well. Possible that uh, I imagine um, they probably got a similar license. But the, the one for Leicester's men survives. And as I say, so it's not so much that it gives them more license to do something they previously couldn't when travelling the provinces, but it does lock them in, I think, as the, the Queen's preferred company for performances at court. So it becomes more of a badge of right rather than uh, a particular license to do more than they had previously. The Earl of Leicester, who was the sponsor for this playing company, is Robert Dudley, as you mentioned, most famous today for his romantic interest in Queen Elizabeth and his entertainment for her at Kenilworth Castle. Would Leicester's men have been the key players for those events? I don't know so much about key players, but I'm fairly confident they were there. The trouble is we don't have the records of household accounts for Robert Dudley for years in which he put on specific pageants or progress, uh, sorry, um, entertainments for the Queen during her progresses. So uh, we lack uh, clear evidence that he paid his own players to perform there. But we do have fairly detailed accounts by various witnesses or those present of what what happened at these um, particular events. And we do know for certain that the playing company did perform for Elizabeth. That's a lock. And we do know that they performed at Kettleworth in some other years because we have payments from Coventry for their presence at Kettleworth. It's listed in the payment at Coventry while they were at Kettleworth. So we know that, play at the, that Leicester's Men's Company did perform at Kenilworth, and we know that they performed for the Queen. So it's a fairly strong prospect that they would have performed in 1575, the particular nine-day pageant that uh, was held at um, Leicester's home castle. The other piece of evidence we have that points, I think, to their presence there is a description by one of the people present, and this is contained in uh, the account is in John Nichols's The Progresses of um, Elizabeth, which has been a book around for a very long time. There's a description of one particular day's entertainments where one company, the men of Coventry as it was, uh, were meant to put on a performance in the afternoon. But it's, it says that uh, the Queen decided not to watch them, but they were then rescheduled for the following day. So they were certainly going to perform the very next day. Then there is a description of an impromptu performance put on by some players. The evidence from the, the documents suggests that it's not the men of Coventry. It's a different group of players put on at short notice, impromptu, for two hours on that same night after supper, which would suggest a company capable of performing a two-hour play at short notice that would have been there at the entertainments. And to me, that suggests Leicester's men. So uh, that's one of the pieces of evidence we have that I think that does put them there. And I think we also would expect his leading players to have played prominent roles in some of the other pageants that he put on for for the the Queen. 
Prior to 1576, when James Burbage built the theater in London, Leicester's men had been a traveling playing company due actually to the fact that all playing companies were traveling companies at this time. After the theater was built, did Leicester's men take up residence at this new playhouse? This is one of the interesting things that it should seem obvious, and yet academics have been arguing about this very question for decades, over 100 years, in fact. Um, in fact, we're coming up to the, the 200th anniversary of, of when uh, antiquarians in the, the early 19th century started the debates when they found out evidence of this place called the theatre having existed and that references to the theatre in early documents weren't generic all the time. Sometimes they actually referred to this specific building in Shoreditch. Now, as you say, they, they put it up in 1576, and James Burbage, who we know was a leading member of uh, Leicester's men, because his name is first on all these other documents we talk about, the letter of 1572 and the, the patent of 1574, uh, Burbage is there up front and centre, and then his name is all over the legal documents around the building of the theatre, along with the grocer, John Brain. Now, Brain, we have no other specific connection to the playing company except through Burbage, and, and that's through a family connection. But I think the deal is there that the grocer agrees that he will supply the goods, the beer and food, for, or the ale and food for, for the, the, the gathered throngs, and the, the leading player will, of course, look after the, the entertainment side of things, and they do this sort of dual arrangement. Similar arrangement happens at the Rose, by the way, with Philip Henslow and a fellow named John Cholmley, who was a grocer. Their names are all over the original documentation for the Rose in a kind of partnership arrangement. And I would suggest there's a possibility of a similar one at Newington Butts that we talked about last time I was on the show, that the person, the man who owned the land was himself a grocer, even though we don't have clear sense that they were working together. It's another of those odd coincidences that he just happened to be a grocer, the guy who owned the land on which this playhouse was built. But to go back to the question about the, the playing company, there is a gap in the records of their provincial travel habits right on 1576 that I don't think can be attributed to any other significant event of the time. I am looking for events that could cause hiccups to a, play, a playing company's habits, like plague, for example, or significant major disasters or weather events, for example. And nothing seems to throw up any other reason for the players not touring in 1576, except for the fact that their leading member, at the very least, was certainly involved in the development of this building called a theatre. So all of that together, to me, suggests that certainly 1576 is the year that Leicester's men decided they would stop touring for a while and try this performing in London gig. Now, I just want to say one more thing, though, about that. I've got a lot of evidence from my research into Leicester's Men that I'm currently writing up, which places most of the early members of the company in the same parish in London. And I believe that same parish in London can also be shown to be the centre of activity of playing in the livery company halls, the records of playing prior to 1559, which have been beautifully coupled together by Anne Lancashire in a large three-volume set for the records of early English drama called Civic London to 1558. I didn't put that in the resources for this episode, by the way, but I'll certainly make sure I mention it now to give Anne um, 
uh, a shout out because it's a phenomenal piece of work, this one. And all these records, I think, show that the players, while they do travel in the Elizabethan period before they then decide to actually invest in a venue of their own close to London, they began in London, that they were um, originally Londoners and that the travelling bug becomes a part of their habit for about 20 years before they then decide to recoil and redouble and, and settle back into London. But as that doesn't quite go to plan, as they constantly run into trouble with the, the city authorities, they then eventually start going back into their regular touring habits again and expand, in fact, the touring circuits. In 1583, Queen Elizabeth created a new playing company called the Queen's Men. Laurie, if Leicester's men already had the royal patent and thus the Queen's support, or at least her expectation that they would perform for her, why would Elizabeth create an entirely new company for herself? That's a good question. And I wish we had a specific document that explains the motivation. We don't. So again, it's one of these ones where we we know it happened. We just don't have the uh, modus operandi, if you like. So what happens in 1583 is... Secretary of State gives the Master of Revels a edict that he will collect from all of the leading companies of the time the very best players to cluster into a single company that will be called the Queen's Men. Now, this isn't the beginning of the Queen's Men as such. The Queen had had players uh, operating under her name for decades before. Queen Mary had had her own company despite being bitterly opposed to playing of any kind, nevertheless, she still allowed her own company to to tour and sprout Catholic propaganda as it was at the time. And uh, before that, Edward and Henry uh, also had significant playing companies of their own. So royal playing companies had been a thing for some time. But what happens in 1583 is this decision to take advantage of other companies having built up naturally a stock of leading resources, a leading performers, and to grab those all together into a supergroup. It's like the cream of the crop, and the cream there being a reference to the great supergroup of the 1960s uh, made up of leading musicians of the time, Eric Clapton and Ginger Baker, for example. And I think that's what's happened in, in 1583. Now, it also uh, is clearly, I believe, intended to be to ensure the quality of performances at court. I suspect what's happening in the 1580s is we see Leicester's men actually go off the radar a little bit. A few things happen around 1580 to 1582. A couple of leading members of Leicester's men actually get into legal trouble. One is actually in the records as having been uh, associating with prostitutes. James Burbage himself seems to have abandoned the company at about this time. And so they're left with a kind of a, almost a talent void, or at least a leadership void. And I think that must show through in the quality of the performances they're providing at court. Uh, and so the, the Queen, uh, or the, at least the, the Secretary of State, decide we need to be able to keep a closer eye on the quality of the performances we're putting in front of our Majesty. So they decide let's just create a group that we can guarantee the, the level of performance. And what happens then after their creation In 1584, they also start touring and spreading propaganda for for the state. 
After what was essentially a dissolution and reorganization of the company, Lester's men, as you say, do go back on tour in the mid-1580s, expanding beyond England. So where exactly did they go when they went back on tour? The touring routes didn't initially expand too much further than what they were used to. And in fact, it, 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 it pretty much dries up around the same time as the, the creation of uh, the Queen's men. So clearly, the creation of the Queen's men impacted the company. There's a very long-standing belief that, in fact, they were dissolved. They ceased to operate for over a year. However, I have found that there is evidence of them in the provinces and in London in those two years, from 83 to 85. But the real impetus for their, their re-energisation, if you like, as a company, comes with the Earl of Leicester's own attempt to redeem himself after having disgraced himself in the eyes of the Queen through a number of issues, one of which was his demanding for a long time that she marry him and then marrying Lettuce Knollis without the Queen's permission and then going off on diplomatic campaigns without her permission uh, and then refusing to return home when demanded, etc. So he continues to blot his copybook in the eyes of the Queen. But in 1585, he takes it upon himself to recruit a number of leading entertainers of the day. We have records in his accounts. We do have records, thankfully, for 85 to 86. And so there's a great deal of evidence of him getting people like Richard Tarleton, the great clown, Will Kemp, the great clown, Robert Brown, one of the leading members of Worcester's men at the time, and various other players whose names then become known to us as a result of this recruitment campaign to go with him over to Europe and try and intercede in the conflicts between the Catholics and Protestants in Denmark. Uh, But he goes in through Germany and and establishes himself gaining some diplomatic support in Germany and surrounding areas. Germany at the time wasn't a single country. It was lots of provinces and and, um, duchies and so on. So he's got to go through lots of areas to get lots of people to support his eventual move into Denmark. And from that, then, we have this strong evidence of the playing company as such being in Europe and touring there, and and several of them stay on. Five members of the the main company are sent to Denmark to work for King Frederick of Denmark. But he grows tired of their presence after a very short period of time, probably not so much for lack of interest in their performances, but uh, lack of desire to want to pay for them. They were going to be quite expensive on the, the royal coffers. So he decides to gift them, re-gift them, in fact, to they were re-gifted to Christian the Elector of Saxony, one of the German provinces. And so off they go from Denmark back down into Germany, and there they stay for quite a few months, well into 1587 in back. Somewhere around the mid-1587, we finally get them released from service and they go back into England. And the members of that particular group included George Bryan and Thomas Pope, who uh, and Will Kemp, by the way, sorry, who we will remember, um, those of us Shakespeareans, as members of Shakespeare's own uh, Lord Chamberlain's men much later. So it's through those people, I think, that we get that direct connection to the Shakespearean inheritance that comes out of Leicester's men. Uh, And, of course, they were there in Denmark, Germany, and performing for royalty uh, in other parts of the world as well. 
that's what was happening for, for Leicester's men in, in the mid-1580s. And then they returned in 1587 and 1588 to a very rigorous touring schedule. The, the, the richest body of evidence we have for extensive tours around England, so any company apart from a couple of years in which the Queen's men were most active, are for 87 and 88 uh, and Leicester's men, where there are more than 40, in fact, upwards of 50 references to them appearing in various provincial locations. I do just want to mention quickly as well that during that time in 85, 1585 and 86, while Leicester was recruiting, we also then get appearances from a company calling themselves Leicester's men in provincial England at the same time as members were in Europe. So there's been this debate about whether they fractured at that time. My gut feeling is not so much that they fractured, but that the Earl of Leicester simply had a kind of recruitment campaign that involved a forward line, if you like, the, the ones that were with him in Europe, and a reserve line, the ones that were staying active in England and then being called up into service when they were needed. It's worth pointing out that if you're wondering why Shakespeare is not mentioned in any of these records, this is one of those times in Shakespeare's life we don't know precisely where he was at or what he was doing, beyond knowing that he was getting married and having children during these times, but we don't have him placed as a playwright quite yet. When Robert Dudley dies in 1588, what happens to the playing company and its members? Another good question. It's one of those ones where it's almost like the lost years of the playing company as much as it's the lost years of Shakespeare at this moment. From 88 to 92, we don't quite know exactly where they turn up. There is a very strong suspicion that the members that end up in Lord Chamberlain's men did so via Lord Strang's men, Darby's men, the company that was working for uh, Henry Winstanley. Um, not Winstanley, sorry, Stanley. Lord Darby. However, we lack the very clear evidence to be able to lock them in for certain. Some think instead that they uh, may have splintered and gone their separate ways before then regrouping under um, the, the patronage of the Lord Chamberlain, um, uh, Henry Carey. But it's one of those ones we don't know for certain. My, my own sense of it, by following the lines of repertory, who owned what plays and who inherited what plays, for example, from Leicester's men, as well as those glimpses we get from time to time where these players do appear in the public record associated with one company or another, that the, the, the majority of them did continue on into the service of Lord Strang, uh, Earl of Derby, before then going straight into the Lord Chamberlain's. And there wasn't a, a splintering so much as one or two of them may have tried their hand at some other ventures before then regrouping rather than the entire company just splintering. Having said that, Lord Strang's men had been in operation prior to that time, so it would have had to have been an amalgamation of sorts, which would naturally lead to some collateral. They couldn't all be part of the same company. The two companies couldn't just conjoin and form a very large arrangement. But it's, it's worth considering what happened exactly. Not unlike what we think of the entertainment industry today, where you do have this overlap of, of people who work over here in this company and that one and the other. So it, it does kind of make sense that they would be a little fluid. Exactly right. And uh, many of the conversations I have with my colleagues about this particular phenomenon run the very same line when they think about, uh, and I used the example of Cream before the supergroup, that we do get evidence, I think, of a similar kind of 
genealogies of playing companies that you can sort of trace with modern rock bands or pop bands that absolutely members of one company will go to another and then eventually bring in some of the, their friends that they used to work with to redevelop a new company and so on and so forth. The only difference being that ultimately what they required in order to maintain viability over a long period of time was royal, or not royal, sorry, noble patronage. The history of Lester's men is obviously a fascinating story, and I know we would love to explore this further. You've mentioned a couple of books already, but what are some of your favorite resources you can recommend for us to use when we do want to learn more? The Earl of Lester's men, they've been written about by a number of people over the years, and I must admit that my own work on them very much owes a debt of gratitude to the people who've gone before. I mentioned um, Anne Lancashire's read volumes, but the uh, read volumes in general are a remarkably rich resource and they continue to grow. The work of all these editors and researchers out there scouring the records of English parishes and England's civil authorities and so on to find records of playing companies out in the provinces, playing companies in London, playing companies overseas. So I would highly recommend the Read Patrons and Performances website. It's a large database, ever-expanding, which attempts to collate all of that data from all that research, and it can be searched by patron, by company, by location, and so on. Um, So we get a very rich heritage of documentation and data all stored and, and, and searchable. Naturally, of course, there are debates about one attribution. Was the company here in this particular document? the the company of Lord Sutton or was it Robert Dudley and so on? They both had the title of Lord Dudley at the same time or at similar times. And so, so <laughs> which so one's helpful, being referred yeah. to? <laughs> <laughs> That's right. So sometimes we do have to make some interpretive decisions in, in dealing with this data. So there's the read patrons and performances. Uh, another one I would highly recommend is basically anything that Sally Beth McLean has ever published on the Earl of Leicester's Men. Um, she updates work that Andrew Gurr had done previously. He had provided the most comprehensive account of the Earl of Leicester's men previously in a book called The Shakespearean Playing Companies. Sally Beth McLean expands significantly, um, particularly through some of her own findings in the archives. And uh, probably the best essay is in a book by Paul Whitfield White and Suzanne Westfall on patronage in early modern England. I think it was called Theatrical Patronage. And there's an essay by Sally Beth McLean in it called Tracking Leicester's Men which actually lays down some really nice methodological groundwork for what we should be looking for uh, that counts as evidence of the the presence of a particular playing company and decisions we should make about how to understand their movements based on that. So if they appear in one location and then in another, there's a good chance they may have appeared in one of the interceding locations, even though the records in that location are lost. We shouldn't assume that the archive is whole in that sense, that part of our job is to understand how to fill in the gaps sensibly and make good decisions based on what anyone does when they put together a touring itinerary. They don't tend to go zigzagging all over the place. They do tend to follow a particular path. I did look up, Laurie sent us notes about his resources and that her chapter is called Tracking Lester's Men. And the book is, you're correct, called Shakespeare and Theatrical Patronage in Early Modern England. We'll link to that. And Sally Beth McLean has actually been a guest here with us on the show as well. So we'll link you to her episode where she also talks about traveling playing companies. So excellent resources there for sure. Thank you, Laurie. We ask everyone 
this next question here at that Shakespeare life. And that's what's the one book you would take with you on a deserted Island. My friends in England tell me I'm supposed to allow you the complete works of Shakespeare and a copy of the Bible. So this choice would be in addition to those. And since you've been a repeat guest with us here, you can decide whether you want to keep your old desert Island book or select a new one. Well, previously, yes, when I was on, I believe I mentioned Dirk Gently's Holistic Detective Agency by Douglas Adams. And it probably would be very easy for me to simply say the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy collection, if I can be allowed a collection, but that probably would be the easy answer. So I'm actually going to go for the the literary critic answer and nominate a book that I don't think too many people have heard of, but I think it's an absolute cracker and I would highly recommend it. It's by Randolph Stowe. It was his final novel called The Suburbs of Hell, which in fact is a quote from Shakespeare in the the title of the, the, the book. And it's a fantastic murder mystery set in a remote fishing village, which is kind of loosely based on his own experience living in fishing village in Western Australia, but it's set up more as a a kind of southern shores of Britain fishing village. And I won't in any way um, reveal the twist, but it has one of the most amazing twists in the history of literature. Fantastic. Well, we will link to these resources and your selection of your Desert Island book in the show notes for today's episode. So make sure you go to the show notes to see those. So what's next for you, Laurie? Where are you working on now that you're excited about? Uh, Well, apart from cracking out this book on Lester's Men, which I hope to have finished uh, sometime later this year, so hopefully it'll appear no later than next year. The the next thing then is this, this project around climate and Shakespeare, which actually became the impetus for the Lester's Men book. So it's going to be sitting in the background for several years now. I've got a, a research team working with me, Elizabeth Tavares, Heather Knight and Matt Stegel, and we're, we're looking at evidence for the impact of what was happening in 16th century climate in Britain on the rise of the playhouses and playhouse culture, that it wasn't all just economic. Even those economic factors were probably influenced, if not entirely shaped by some evident changes in the climate of Britain at the time. So there was a bit of climate shift happening, and this is fully documented and scientifically proven. We don't have to do the science on that. We've got that science. No, sure, that part, yeah. That. <laughs> Although sifting through it, I'm sure, is great fun to have the all great of thing about The great thing about climate work, particularly for pre-18th century, is that you have to do a lot of proxy work. You've got to go into the historical records to find people talking about what the weather was doing because there wasn't a, a, a central authority monitoring temperatures and so on and all this. Uh, so it's very much historical work as much as it is scientific. Fascinating stuff. Well, Laurie, thank you so much again for being here and walking us through the history of Lester's Men. We look forward to what's new and your work in the future. And thank you so much for spending some time with us today. This has been fun. Thanks, Cassidy. To find resources for today's episode, including links to the books and recommendations from Lori, along with pictures, images, and bonus history about our topic today, be sure to stop by the show notes. You can leave a comment and let us know what you think about today's episode, as well as ask questions to learn more about today's topic. Find all of these things at CassidyCash.com slash episode 176. That's CassidyCash.com slash EP 176. 
If you like the history you're learning about here on the show and you want to go even further into the life of William Shakespeare with documentaries, animated plays, and bonus history episodes straight from the life of William Shakespeare, then consider becoming a member here at That Shakespeare Life. Members get unlimited access to our entire video streaming library full of video versions of our podcast, documentaries, award-winning animated plays, and so much more, all of which you can stream on your desktop, tablet, or phone, and there are no commercials. Explore all the benefits of being a member and sign up today at CassidyCash.com slash member. That's CassidyCash.com slash member. That's it for this week. Thank you for listening. I'm Cassidy Cash, and I hope you learn something new about the Bard. I'll see you next week. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to That Shakespeare Life. As always, the best conversations happen after the episode over at CassidyCash.com. Become a part of a vibrant Shakespeare conversation by adding your voice over at the website. Until next time, remember, when you want to know William Shakespeare, you have to go behind the curtain and into That Shakespeare Life.